This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a very special guest on today's show. That would be John Dean, the former star witness of the Watergate hearings and Nixon White House counsel, who's authored eight bestsellers, including Worse Than Watergate. We had the privilege to speak with Mr. Dean about that book, Worse Than Watergate, a couple years back, and we are very glad to have him back to talk about his latest effort titled Pure Goldwater, which he's co-edited with Barry Goldwater Jr., Given the current political climate where Barry Goldwater might be considered a liberal, we're sure you'll find our, uh, our discussion in segment two very provocative. So by all means, stay tuned for that. We'd like to thank all who contributed to last week's pledge drive here at KDVS. And by the way, you can still contribute by going to fundraiser.kdvs.org. We hope you will do this because we did fall somewhat short of our $75,000 goal, finishing at just over $58,000. This will not cause us to, uh, to lose any of our operations, but boy, it would be nice if we could have made our target. So please do what you can to go on the web at fundraiser.kdvs.org and push us a bit closer, won't you? want to thank absolutely everyone out there who chipped in during our hour and got us very close to our $1,000 goal. I am somewhat disappointed that we missed our goal by uh, evidently $20. So uh, to all of you out there who were thinking about contributing but did not do so, uh, well, please go to fundraiser.kdbs.org and make up for that deficit. Let us begin as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is May 1st. May 1st is a traditional date of celebration of spring in, uh, in Europe. The date was also one of celebration for communists around the world, which don't really have a lot to celebrate these days. It was on May 1st in 1786 that uh, the Austrian composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, premiered in Vienna. Also on May 1st in 1941, American producer-slash-director Orson Welles' landmark film, Citizen Kane, debuted at the RKO Palace in New York City. A thinly disguised profile of newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, whom Welles played, the movie touched off a long-standing feud between producer and publisher. And in that long battle, Orson Welles pretty consistently took second place. But ultimately, the joke may have been on Hearst. Citizen Kane is still widely regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. In fact, I was reminiscing about it not so long ago with film instructor uh, Matt Perry, who, like me, was amazed at how the young 25-year-old Orson Welles was able to play all of the ages of man in this motion picture and do it convincingly. And on May 1st, 1950, the musical South Pacific won the Pulitzer Prize for Best Original American Play. And a damn fine play it is. It's based rather loosely on James Michener's Tales of the South Pacific and contains some absolutely fabulous music by Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart. I have found me a wonderful guy. 
Our quote of the day comes from Mark Twain, who once said, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did. And trust me, those are words to live by. Our quip of the day comes from H.L. Mencken, who once said, Every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. Our stat of the day comes from a study done by three University of Indiana scholars who observed Fox News host Bill O'Reilly in action and noted that his daily commentaries contain an average of 8.9 instances of name-calling per minute, which works out to one insult every 6.8 seconds. Our joke of the day is as follows. A 19-year-old Australian girl tells her mom that she's a bit late. The mother buys a pregnancy kit and confirms that the girl is pregnant. The parents are angry and demand to know who is the father. The girl makes a phone call and half an hour later a Ferrari pulls up. A distinguished looking man with gray hair in an Armani suit steps out of the car. He enters the house and sits down with the family. The father says, an abortion's out of the question, mate. So what have you got to say for yourself? Man says, your daughter's informed me of the problem and I'm sorry but I can't marry her because of my family situation. But I can and will pay all costs for your daughter for the rest of her life. In addition, if it's a girl, I'll bequeath an additional retail store, a townhouse, and $2 million. If it's a boy, I'll provide a factory, a Ferrari, and $3 million. I'm not sure what to do if there's a miscarriage, however. What do you suggest? The father places a hand on the man's shoulder and says, Well, mate, I suggest you have another go at it. And uh, we got our copy of Radar magazine uh, this month, so we think we'll use the Radar 100 for this show, which includes 100 reasons why you can't sleep. All right, among, among these might be, you keep forgetting the chorus to Safety Dance. Another reason, that free futon you found behind Applebee's has not turned out to be the boon that you imagined. All right, Radar magazine reasons you can't sleep, well... You shouldn't have ordered the Ambien from Craigslist. Another thing keeping you up? The Magic 8-Ball keeps requesting you to ask again later. All right, Radar Magazine reasons you can't sleep. Well, you're staying up one more hour to see how Ron Popeil will blow your mind this time. Another reason? You've suddenly realized you chose the path most traveled. All right, among the magazine's 100 reasons you can't sleep. Constantly interrupted by Christmas ghosts. And lastly, oh, you just had to take that voodoo priest's parking spot, didn't you? Radar Magazine. Funny stuff. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for impressing the babes. After Britain's Prince William came under criticism for landing a Royal Air Force helicopter at his girlfriend's country estate. Newspapers condemned the use of government property worth about $20 million for private wooing. 
The defense ministry issued a news release saying that the stopover at Kate Middleton's family property was part of an exercise for practicing takeoffs and landings. A likely story. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for education this week when Congress, unable to agree on reforms to the No Child Left Behind law, announced far-reaching changes of its own. Rather than change the law itself, the department will revise regulations spelling out how the law is administered. Currently, states use a variety of methods, which often result in what are described as exaggerated claims of success. To any week where they don't scrap, no child left behind is a bad week for education. And finally, it was an ugly week this past week for slipping the surly bonds of earth. After a Brazilian priest strapped himself into a chair attached to a huge cluster of helium balloons and soared into the heavens to the cheers of his parishioners. Evidently, researchers then spent several days unsuccessfully searching the Atlantic Ocean for some sign of the Reverend Adelir Antonio de Carli. Supreme Court this week upheld voter identification laws in Indiana that required photo IDs to vote. This is a Republican effort to keep people from voting while black. In a 6-3 to three ruling in what's described as the most eagerly awaited election law case in years, the court rejected arguments that Indiana's law, which is probably the strictest in the country, imposes unjustified burdens on people who are old, poor, or members of minority groups and thus less likely to have driver's licenses or other acceptable forms of identification. Perhaps not coincidentally, this ruling comes just eight days before the Indiana primary. This is a terrible law, and uh, it's not the law here in California. It would be very annoying, I think, for all of us to have to go down and show a, a driver's license to be allowed to vote. It's not necessary, it's ridiculous, and it's an effort to keep uh, minorities and poor people, and black people in particular, from voting. I'm not surprised at the actions of the felonious five judges, uh, John Roberts, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and, and Anthony Kennedy, which in essence represent the five votes that put Bush in the White House back in 2000. I mean, Sam Alito standing in for Sandra Day O'Connor and John Roberts stands in for William Rehnquist. But the guy that really surprises me is Judge John Paul Stevens, whose doctor Will Durst often describes as the most important man in Washington. In, in writing the opinion, Justice Stevens evidently cited the 1868 New York City election in which Boss Tweed evidently voted people repeatedly. Yeah, when it comes to supervising U.S. elections, uh, I, I can't think of too many people doing a worse job than the Supreme Court of the United States. And yes, this ruling is going to have widespread repercussions. Uh, stay tuned. And one of the biggest stories uh, of this entire spring, uh, the article by David Barstow in the New York Times about how the Pentagon has been massaging America's news, uh, is getting some play, but not nearly the amount it deserves. This article certainly puts the lie to the claim being made that mainstream journalists were ignoring all the good news in Iraq. And once we had military officials go take a look, by God, they were able to find a lot of good things happening. Among those outed in this article were two of NBC's most prominent analysts, including Barry McCaffrey, 
the man that formerly ran our drug war. We've reported on this program in the past that uh, this, this sort of massaging of public opinion amounts to psychological operations or psyops. This article details exactly how true that is. Paul E. Valley, who was a Fox News analyst from 2001 to 2007, himself a retired Army general who had specialized in psychological warfare, Mr. Valley co-authored a paper in 1980 that accused the American news organizations of failing to defend the nation from, quote, enemy propaganda during Vietnam, unquote. We lost the war, according to Mr. Valley, not because we were outfought, but because we were out psyoped. He urged a radically new approach to psychological operations in future wars, taking aim not just at foreign adversaries, but at domestic audiences too. He called his approach Mind War, using network TV and radio to, quote, strengthen our national will to victory, unquote. This is very scary stuff. Ralph Peters, writing the New York Post, said, The generals are not stupid men. They know the difference between propaganda and true military intelligence. In many cases, they were flown to Iraq for stage-managed, all-expense-paid Pentagon junkets and then reported their, quote, findings, unquote, on CNN or Fox as if this was unfiltered information coming straight from their, quote, trusted friends and acquaintances in uniform, unquote. Most telling, of course, is the fact that the generals uh, were revealed by this article uh, as being well aware of the fact that the war was not going well. But in spite of that fact, choosing to hold their tongue because to criticize would mean getting booted out of their exclusive little club and losing all that defense industry payola. If you've not yet read this article, please do yourself a favor after this broadcast and go look it up. This was in the New York Times. It was titled, Behind Military Analysts, The Pentagon's Hidden Hand. The author's David Barstow, B-A-R-S-T-O-W. And how about this article by Ann Scott Tyson in the Washington Post, titled, Joint Chief Chairman Says U.S. Preparing Military Operations Against Iran. The article starts out, the nation's top military officer said today that the Pentagon is planning for, quote, potential military courses of action, unquote, against Iran, criticizing what he called the Tehran government's increasingly lethal and malign influence in Iraq. Admiral Michael Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said a conflict with Iran would be extremely stressing, but not impossible for U.S. forces, pointing specifically to reserve capabilities in the Navy and Air Force. It would be a mistake to think that we are out of combat capability, said the Admiral at a Pentagon news conference. Can't we all look forward to the psyops that will now explain why it is going to war in Iran is going to work out just fine. And by the way, a couple of weeks back, the State Department certified the mammoth $740 million U.S. Embassy in Baghdad as ready to open, six months behind schedule. This heavily fortified complex is the United States' largest embassy. In fact, it's the largest embassy in the world. In uh, domestic news, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the use of lethal injections on April 16th. It was a stupid argument being offered by opponents of the death penalty that uh, the lethal injection might subject the prisoner to undue suffering. And all I can say to that is, you know, it's the same method they use to put down my cat and in fact is the same method they use to put down your family pet. I know a lot of people are against the death penalty, but this was a disingenuous argument, and the Supreme Court rightfully threw it out. 
And uh, we talked a couple weeks back about the article in the Sacramento Bee about how uh, Tibet had off and on been a part of China. We're pleased to report that a lot of people caught that uh, erroneous uh, assertion by retired California State University Sacramento sociology professor Ivy Lee. In letters to the Bee, Charles Kendrick of Rancho Cordova said, I'm a bit confused by Ivy Lee's statement that Tibet has been part of China for centuries. The relationship between Tibet and China is more akin to that between Poland and Germany. At no time until the Chinese invasion of 1950 has Tibet been part of the Chinese empire, wrote Ralph Harder from Sutter Creek. A sociology professor would have us believe that Tibet seceded from China and was reunited in 1959. That's analogous to saying Tibet is part of the British Empire. England did invade and conquer Tibet at the beginning of the 20th century. It left not long afterwards because it couldn't justify continued occupation. There's nothing Chinese about Tibet. Tibet is or was a strongly Buddhist country. The language is unrelated to Chinese. The two dominant ethnic groups do not resemble Chinese. The writer suspends credibility by ignoring the 80% of the monasteries that have been destroyed by China. And finally wrote Fred Chapman from Sacramento, I was dismayed that forum writer Ivy Lee's idea of the richness of Chinese culture includes revisionist history. It is true that both the Han and other groups have immigrated to Tibet over the centuries, and people from Tibet have moved into China. That does not mean that these lands should all belong to China. It'd be like saying France should take over the U.S. because many French people moved to America. The fact is, Tibet was not a part of China until Chairman Mao sent in his army, and I'm glad a lot of people caught the error, and I wish uh, in the future that the Sacramento Bee would be a little more circumspect about what it publishes, even in opinion pieces. And I think at this point we ought to go to our good pal, America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I just want to say, oh my living God, it's still not over. Welcome to the primary process that wouldn't die. After six excruciatingly long weeks of watching these two candidates bowl badly and throw back shots with their beers a little too well, if you know what I mean, and, and dodging sniper fire and learning way too much about their, how do you say, excitable spiritual advisors, Pennsylvania was supposed to fire the shot that ended this historic race. But the gun jammed, or the powder was dry, or maybe they were shooting blanks. All I know is to the elders of the Democratic Party. This has got to be the worst case scenario. The grisliest of horror movies. A political version of Saw 5. Two people locked inside of one country with a chainsaw. It's the nomination process of the living dead. Hillary Clinton didn't win Pennsylvania. She survived. She lived the campaign again, but the clock is ticking, and she's like a coyote caught in the trap of time. The bad part is, she's running out of limbs to gnaw off. The junior senator from New York may have taken the Pennsylvania primary by double digits, but she only cut the junior senator from Illinois' delegate lead by six, which means that if she continues to close at this rate, she should overtake him sometime during the middle of his second presidential term. There are only two Democrats in America who aren't in favor of the Obama and Clinton dream ticket. Unfortunately, those two Democrats are Obama and Clinton. And meanwhile, John McCain is free to stumble around the country frightening children. 
Someone please warn Indiana, North Carolina. The circus is coming to town, and the clowns are brandishing power tools. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break and talk to John Dean about a man he knew quite well, the late Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. <laughs> ¶¶ 